Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. My mental health really began to suffer during COVID. At first, life seemed normal. I work from home anyway. But as the months passed, with no vacation, no friends to see, no change in routine, it was a bit like the walls were closing in. And one of the things that got me through that period was therapy. Talking to someone who could help change the patterns that led to distress was incredibly helpful. If there's something you need to get off your chest, then why not give BetterHelp a try? You can just fill out a brief questionnaire online and they'll match you with a licensed therapist. You can arrange things to suit your schedule, and if you don't click with the person you're talking to, it's easy to switch to someone else. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Byzantium today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Byzantium. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 186, The Pechenegg Wars. Last time, we saw our people-pleasing emperor, Constantine IX, face down yet more challenges to his rule. One was the settlement in the Balkans of thousands of steppe nomads from across the Danube, and possibly connected to that decision, a revolt by his Balkan troops who tried to replace him with their general, Leo Tornikios. Constantine survived in part because of the loyalty he'd generated in the hearts of the people of Constantinople. And I closed our last episode promising to talk about how he'd achieved this. The short answer is, of course, that he'd pleased people. He doled out a lot of money to worthy and less worthy causes, he promoted those who craved advancement, and he built a huge new church complex in the capital, creating work for builders, artisans, and landscape gardeners alike. All while leaving Zoe and Theodora alone, and financing their own generous spending habits. But I've decided to leave the longer answer, to that question for next episode. As our title suggests, the settlement of thousands of Pechenegs on imperial land was a ticking time bomb, and it was the first encounter between Byzantium and the Turks which set it off. These are the crucial events which start us down the path towards Manzikert and the Crusades. They require an episode all to themselves, and they prompt huge financial problems, which we can talk about along with the Emperor's generosity next time. A healthy animal, with a thoroughly strong constitution, is not altered in a moment at the first symptoms of illness. So, with the Empire in the reign of Constantine. It was by no means moribund, and its breathing was still energetic, 
The neglect from which it was suffering seemed an insignificant item until, by slow degrees, the malady grew, and reaching a crisis threw the patient into utter confusion, complete disorder. This later stage, however, had not yet been approached, and the emperor, taking little share in the anxieties of power, but seeking recreation in a multitude of pleasures, was preparing the then healthy body of his empire for a thousand maladies destined to attack it in the future. So says Michael Psellos. Writing when Anatolia was already lost, our historian looked back to this time in the reign of Monomachos and located the moment when he felt the empire had begun its fall. Pselos blames the Vasilefs for not taking the job of emperor seriously and neglecting the army. As we'll see today, it's a pretty unfair characterization. But he is right to see this as the crucial moment in Byzantium's fortunes. Whoever happened to be on the throne during this time was going to struggle with simultaneous invasions in east and west. But more than that, simultaneous invasions by steppe tribes, something that no emperor had ever had to deal with before. As you know, nomadic horse archers were the most devastating troops in the medieval world. Their ability to move quickly, control their horses with immense skill, and fire arrows from distance was a deadly combination. All things being equal, a steppe force would always defeat a settled people's army in open combat. Byzantine military manuals are very clear on this. They suggest every possible tactic except pitched battle. So, let's talk about the Turks. As we discussed in episode 175, Turkic tribes had migrated into the caliphate during Basil II's reign. By the time Monomachos came to power, they had formed a confederation that had taken over eastern Iran. This Seljuk confederation was now moving west against the Buyids and Baghdad. But unlike the controlled settlement of the Pechenegs, Turkic steppe tribes were pouring into the Middle East. The endless wars that the Seljuks fought demanded a steady supply of fresh nomads from the north. These people brought their lifestyle with them and pushed their herds through Iran into Azerbaijan on the border with Armenia. Sporadic raids looking for pasture and plunder had entered Armenia during the last 20 years, but had not caused undue alarm. In 1045, though, a major incursion took place, ironically just as Roman troops captured the city of Ani. So at the same moment that the Byzantines seized the largest metropolis in the mountains, the people that would brutally eject them from the region entered the picture. The raids which hit Roman interests over the next 25 years have no discernible pattern. Some were simple smash-and-grab raids, some were aiming to find good pasture land, and some were centrally directed attacks looking to impose political control. 
tribal politics were complicated, and so we don't need to concern ourselves too much with the purpose of each attack. The Turks were exploring the new world that they were slowly coming to dominate, and the Caucasus offered both settlements to sack alongside pockets of grassland that were ideal for the herds. The incursion of 1045 had crossed briefly into Vaspurakan, the easternmost point of Roman control in Armenia, and put the empire on notice that more raids were coming. The next one of note appeared in 1048, as in the same summer when the bulk of the eastern army was racing to Constantinople to save Monomachos from the rebellion of Leo Tornikios. That summer's raid passed through Azerbaijan and moved into Georgia. Gathering up loot and prisoners, the Turks returned home south, passing again through Vaspurakan. Seeing them coming, the Roman commanders of the area combined their forces and prepared to stop them. Wisely avoiding direct confrontation, the generals set up a full army camp complete with palisades, and then they abandoned it, hiding nearby. The victorious tribesmen, seeing an empty military camp, entered and began plundering it. Imperial forces then charged down on their unprepared enemy, and slaughter ensued as the steppe riders fled for safety. It was a well-executed defensive manoeuvre but it did not deter the Turks. Stories of the easy plunder they had enjoyed before the trap were spread back home, and so the following summer a huge army advanced back into Georgia. The same two Roman commanders pulled their forces all the way back to Theodosiopolis, knowing they had no chance against such a large force. They called on their Georgian ally, a general named Lipperit, to bring his forces south to join them. But while they waited, the nomads sacked the trading town of Arts nearby. As you know, Theodosiopolis was the key fortress in the northeast of Anatolia, but the mercantile activity of the region was focused on nearby Arts. The Romans advised the locals to take refuge in nearby forts, which many did, but the merchants of Arts refused to abandon their riches. The Turks burnt the town during the sacking and carried off a huge amount of booty. This was the first serious damage done by the Turkic tribes to an important Roman site, and it set alarm bells ringing all the way back to Constantinople. In the meantime, the Georgians arrived, and the combined army engaged the Turks in a pitched battle. We have conflicting reports on the outcome. The Turks were able to return home safely with most of their loot, and captured Lipperit during the fighting, so they probably felt like the winners. But the Roman forces also claimed certain tactical victories and seemed to have emerged relatively unscathed. Still, the real headline was that a massive army from the east had invaded Roman territory and sacked one of its richest towns. Nothing like this had been seen since the days of Seyfatola.
and from the reports Monomachos was now receiving of the size and capabilities of the nomads, this was a far greater threat. Far from being uninterested, Monomachos responded with vigour to these alarming developments. He dispatched one of his most trusted eunuchs to become overall military commander in the east, and he sent an embassy to seek out the Seljuk Sultan. We'll talk more about Tugril in the future. For now, the two sides agreed to be mutually respectful, and eventually Lipperet was returned to Georgia unharmed. As a sign of respect, Monomachos switched who was to be honoured in the prayers of the mosque at Constantinople. No more would the locals ask God to aid the Fatimid Caliph, but instead the Seljuk Sultan. Though this was gesture politics, it indicated that even from just two raids, the Romans were well aware of how much of a threat the Turkish tribes could be. This friendly exchange of words also masked a build-up of military forces on each side. We should be clear that the Seljuks had no interest in fighting the Romans at this stage, but Tugril did not have control over all the tribes now living in Azerbaijan, and he would end up finding it politically convenient to send troublemakers and rivals on raids across the Roman border all the while claiming that it had nothing to do with him. Meanwhile, Monomachos also knew that further trouble was ahead. Raids on that scale are not mounted by accident, and successful ones are always repeated. The emperor needed to beef up the defences on his side of the border, ideally with soldiers who had experience fighting steppe nomads, and ideally not soldiers who would demand gigantic wages to do so. Can you see where this is going? In early 1049, just two years after they had been disarmed and peacefully settled in Bulgaria, Tyrak's Pechenegs were called upon to gather. Imperial officials told them that they were to be transplanted over a thousand miles east to new homes in Armenia. There, they would be encouraged to re-adopt their steppe lifestyle and be employed as a border patrol. We're told that 15,000 men were recruited. They were marched to the sea, put on boats and sailed across to Anatolia. There they were armed and given horses and led by a Byzantine officer towards their new homes a few weeks' march away. The Pechenegs moved inland a few miles, but at the first opportunity they rebelled. They ditched their Roman chaperones and headed north. They found the narrowest part of the Bosphorus they could see and swam back across to Europe. Once there, they trekked north to reunite with their families, and everybody agreed that they would never work for the Romans again. The gathering Pechenegg host naturally headed north beyond the Hemus Mountains to the grasslands near Preslav, which had served the Bulgars so well when they had moved there 400 years earlier. 
Here was the means to support their steppe lifestyle, and they quickly gathered the animals and weapons necessary to mount attacks on nearby Roman populations. From them they stole more necessities of life and began preparing for the inevitable imperial response. It's really hard not to see these events as entirely predictable. Surely, the Romans knew that this move would be hugely resented. How could they not see the danger in transporting the nomads en masse like this? Why was no thought given to breaking the Pechenegs up into smaller groups and moving them with military escorts? Of course, it's easy to be smug looking at these events with hindsight, but not only does it offend common sense to create an army with no loyalty to you and let it loose in imperial territory, but we've seen over the centuries that forced migrations can cause extremely dangerous situations. Not only the treatment of the Goths back in the 4th century, which this situation so clearly mirrors, but also events under Justinian II, who forced thousands of Slavs to move to Anatolia. He then armed them and ordered them to fight the Arabs, whereupon they promptly defected and settled in the Caliphate. Or if that was too distant an example for Monomachos to remember, then what about the Bulgarian rebellion of a decade ago? where armies composed of ethnic Bulgarians had turned their backs on the empire as soon as a viable leader offered them the chance to do so. Now, to be fair to Monomachos, a man with no previous military experience, surely this was not his brainchild. His military advisers must have recommended this scheme, though the histories do not record who should be blamed for this fiasco. The only Pechenegs still following Roman orders were the followers of Kagan, the chieftain who'd begun this whole process of migration three years earlier. Kagan and his men travelled south, responding to Monomachos' call for their aid. They camped not far from Constantinople, as their chief prepared to travel to the capital for the emperor's war council. At this point, three of his men tried to assassinate the chief while he was sleeping. Kagan was wounded, but the alarm was sounded in time to save him and capture his assailants. They invoked the name of Monomachos, and so the Pechenegs dragged them before the emperor to explain themselves. They claimed that Kagan had planned on assaulting the Roman capital and killing the Vasilefs a ludicrous story which Monomachos supposedly gave credence to. The wounded Kagan and his senior men were kept under house arrest in the capital while the matter was investigated. Outside in Thrace, the remainder of the Pechenegs smelt a rat. Their suspicions were already raised by the assassination attempt, and now some rabble-rousers whipped the men up into a frenzy. The Romans had imprisoned their leaders. Surely they would try to enslave the rest of them soon enough, or indeed ship them a thousand miles away to fight their wars for them. Fear gripped the camp, and the Pechenegs decided not to wait around and discover their fate. They marched north, 
crossed the Hemus Mountains and joined their countrymen in open revolt. Again, we are left flabbergasted by apparent Roman incompetence. In this case, though, modern historians are suspicious of the whole assassination story. The whole thing may be made up in order to pin the blame for all of this on the apparently gullible Monomachos. Perhaps it's more likely that Kegan's supporters were already sympathetic to the plight of their fellow tribesmen and genuinely feared that they too would be shipped off to parts unknown and separated from their families. Probably Kegan lost control of them and ended up just as distraught as Monomachos was when they joined the uprising. Whatever the real story, clearly, the decision to move the Pechenegs to Armenia was having disastrous consequences on relations between the two sides. Kegan and Tyrak's men now united, fully armed, and determined to maintain their independence. Both chieftains were now hostages in Constantinople, which is a confrontation that I would pay to see. Although not for long, Monomachos released Tyrak and sent him north, hoping that he could persuade his people of the benefits of working within the empire's military structure. Whether he really tried, we don't know, because as soon as he'd crossed the mountains, he regained his position of leadership and joined the rebellion. Fantastic. In the meantime, the Pechenegs were raiding northern Thrace and came into contact with imperial troops marching north from Adrianople. Isolated groups of nomads were easily scared off by the organized Roman force, but when the Pechenegs gathered in full strength, the Byzantines were defeated in open battle. Quite unused to facing the tactics of the steppe, the soldiers bid a hasty retreat for home, suffering nasty losses as they did. One can only assume that Monomachos was furious at this point. He was now forced to call on the cream of the eastern armies to abandon their positions and march west again, thus weakening the very eastern defences that had meant to be strengthened by the Pechenegg migration. By September 1049, the Byzantine army was ready to tackle the nomads. Remember that this was now a combined army of western and eastern troops, men who only two years earlier had fought on different sides of a civil war. Our historians make a brief reference to this, and it may have contributed to the disjointed attack which followed. Another trusted eunuch, Constantine, was put in charge of this operation, but the Romans did not listen to their own forebears who warned against engaging the nomads in pitched battle. The Pechenegs retreated in the face of the imperial advance, but turned to face them near their new home patch to the east of Preslav. Again we have conflicting reports of Roman strategy. One historian says they charged in disorder, another says they were more cautious. In both cases, the vibe we get is that the Romans were concerned not to let the nomads run away. They wanted to crush them in one battle. This was exactly the wrong attitude to take in dealing with steppe riders. 
by committing in full strength on a battlefield of the Pechenegs choosing, the Romans gave them what they wanted. Whatever took place that day, the end result was in no doubt. The nomads routed the imperial army, which suffered heavy losses. This was the worst Roman defeat for a century, and a complete strategic disaster. Both eastern and western fronts were weakened, and the empire was lucky that the Turks did not raid in strength at the same time. An anecdote from these campaigns gives us an insight into why fighting the nomads was so difficult. Most medieval battles were over relatively quickly. Rarely did two sides slug it out to the death. Usually, one side routed. An example would be one unit gets cut up badly by an opposing one and panics and starts to run. If the neighbouring unit sees this and thinks that their flank is going to be exposed by their colleagues running away, they might start to run too. Pretty soon, a tipping point is reached when the entire army unravels with everybody running in different directions looking out for their own safety. And it's at this point where most of the casualties are suffered, because once you turn your back on someone, they have a much greater chance of killing you. This is where step archers become the most deadly opponents. Not only can a man on a horse catch a running man quickly, but if he can shoot from a distance, then he doesn't even have to risk getting close to the panicking figures in front of him. One of the Roman subcommanders was an experienced soldier from the Votaniates family. As the Roman rout took place, he turned to his unit and ordered them to stay in a compact formation and retreat slowly away from the battle. He knew that they would be slaughtered if they ran, but that by maintaining their cohesion, they stood a chance of surviving. This was sound strategy during that first day of carnage. The victorious Pechenegs rode past his men, chasing easier pickings. But by the following day, Votaniati's unit were conspicuous on the road back to Adrianople. Naturally, those fleeing on foot had headed for forests or foothills, anywhere they would be harder to track, whereas this unit were making their way home in open country. The battle may have been over, but the slaughter had only just begun. Bands of Pechenegs would continue to hunt Roman survivors for the next two weeks. Why not? There was armour and cash to scoop up from the ground, and anyone you caught alive could be enslaved. Votaniates found a river heading south and made sure his men moved slowly along one of its banks. Obviously they needed the water to survive, but this positioning also prevented the Pechenegs from encircling them. The steppe riders charged at this isolated unit several times over the next few days. Shooting from a distance, they killed all the horses still present, slowing the Roman retreat considerably. But Votaniates was prepared to stand his ground. Every time he was peppered with arrows, his men formed a shield wall and waited for the nomads to run out of ammunition. When the Pechenegs tired of this, they charged directly at the Byzantines. But despite suffering a stream of casualties, 
the discipline of the infantry withstood these assaults. In hand-to-hand combat, the Romans were still a match for anyone. Votaniates made a series of improvisations as he went, stripping armour and weapons from dead colleagues to make sure his men were equipped, and cutting cavalry boots down to make them more efficient for walking. The unit barely slept as they made the eleven-day march back to Adrianople. Being pursued by cavalry while on foot was an utterly exhausting trial. The Pechenegs could go away, camp in safety, get a good night's sleep, and still catch up with the Romans the next afternoon. Eventually, Votaniates made it back to Adrianople and has won praise from posterity. It's likely this account was added later to win favour from his ancestors, but the story graphically illustrates the danger of engaging toe-to-toe with step riders. They rarely needed to tangle with enemy infantry, and if you chased after them or ran away from them, the results were almost always awful. The emperor called up more units from the east and reinforced the surviving troops, still under the command of the eunuch Constantine. They wintered in Adrianople, ready to again engage the Pechenegs the following summer. By June 1050, the nomads had crossed the mountains and were making their way south. This time, the Romans created a huge reinforced military camp from which to operate, but we're told that Samuel Vortzis, grandson of the man who'd taken Antioch for Nicephorus' focus, ignored orders and led a reckless charge against the enemy. The rest of the army were forced to charge headlong into battle to avoid abandoning their colleagues, and the results were the same. The Byzantines routed and fled back to their military camp. The Pechenegs surrounded them, taunting them that when they ran out of food, they would be slaughtered to a man. Fortunately, the Scoli, the best cavalry regiment of the Tachmata, had been held back and now advanced to relieve the besieged force. The army of Bulgaria was also on the march, and so the Pechenegs decided to leave while the going was good. This was a less costly defeat. The Romans were slowly relearning the lessons of old. Thanks to the reinforced camp, they didn't have to retreat nearly as far before they were safe. But again, their lack of cohesion had cost them. It's always difficult to know if stories of misunderstandings and disobeyed orders are literally true, or if they are excuses for defeat. But we heard very similar stories during imperial failures against the Arabs and Bulgars from centuries past suggesting that there is truth in these tales. Again, medieval battles were won less by tactics and more by morale and leadership. We rarely hear of misunderstandings and disobedience under Phocas, Zimisces, or Basil II. When men campaign repeatedly under a firm leader, then they have more faith in their mission. When the going gets tough, they stand and fight, knowing that support is on the way and rewards for bravery will be offered. Here, Monomachos had little choice but to appoint loyal eunuchs as his army commanders, 
and men who depended on his support for their position. After all, he'd just faced down a rebellion from his European troops, who'd been keen to support their general, Leo Tornikios, in overthrowing him. And it's not like he was sending incompetent eunuchs, or men who would faint at the first sight of blood, it's just that they didn't command respect. They had to gather together the various subcommanders in one tent and agree on a plan of campaign. Under these circumstances, it's quite plausible to hear that one unit of the army behaved differently from the agreed-upon plan. It wasn't quite war by committee, but it wasn't far off. To their credit, the Romans finally realised the folly of trying to meet the horsemen in open combat. Monomachos ordered his remaining forces to occupy all the strongholds of the Thracian countryside and use guerrilla tactics to at least make raiding difficult for the enemy. This was essentially a reversion to the tactics that had for centuries been used against the Arabs in Anatolia. And the results across the next three years were solid. Twice we hear of Pechenegg warbands who camped too close to Roman forts before being butchered in their sleep by imperial troops. By the end of 1053, the nomads, who had done considerable damage to the countryside, no longer felt safe raiding, since they knew that the Romans were hiding behind every wall, lying in wait. There's a, an entertaining story from this period I thought you might want to hear, uh, of a general, a Roman general, who fell into the hands of the Pechenegs. He was brought before one of the chieftains, at which point he grabbed the sword of a nearby guardsman and plunged it into the chief. Naturally, the general was brutally killed for this, and, I mean, who knows what really happened, but sometimes the English translation of our sources leads to unintentional comedy. So it says, The Pechenegs were inflamed with wrath and cut him to pieces. Slitting open his belly, they pulled out his guts and replaced them with his hands and feet, which they cut off for the purpose. He then died a noble death. Anyway, Monomachos also released Kegan in the vain hope that he might be able to sow dissension amongst the Pechenegg ranks. And this is exactly what Tyrak knew he would do. So as soon as Kegan arrived north of the Hemus, he was murdered. After three years of guerrilla combat, the emperor had again gathered enough men to try and batter the Pechenegs into submission. A combined force from the south joined the army of Bulgaria and again crossed the Hemus Mountains. The two sides met not far from Preslav, and this time it was the nomads who were forced into a defensive posture. They built a huge palisade and prepared to wait the Romans out. It was a sound tactic. On this occasion, the imperial forces had outmaneuvered them and got them pinned down and surrounded, but the Romans were a long way from home and wary of charging the defences given the expert archers manning the barricades. As the days passed, the Romans began running out of food. The commanders met and agreed to withdraw carefully under the cover of darkness. Tyrak had anticipated this decision, though, 
and at dawn his men sprinted after the Romans, putting them to flight. Again, heavy losses were taken as men tumbled to their deaths in the chaos. Though it was another tale of woe for Byzantium, it clearly made an impression on the Pechenegs. Much of the Roman force made it safely to Adrianople and began to regroup. When it became clear that the emperor was not going to give up the fight despite all the suffering, Tyrak and his fellow chieftains sued for peace. Monomachos accepted. We don't know the details of the agreement, except that it was a 30-year truce. Presumably, the two sides exchanged hostages and agreed not to raid each other's territory. We assume that the Pechenegs were paid something by the empire, as this was the normal arrangement in this situation, and we know that Monomachos was forced to follow this up by lavishing money and titles on the elites of the Danube trading towns and fortresses. Why? Because they were now having to live alongside the untamed Pechenegs. A few key defections, and the nomads would be able to take control of the Danube and essentially recreate the Bulgarian state of old. So, here we are then. Not exactly back to square one, but in the space of five years, the strategic situation has gone all the way back to the 970s. An eastern power is threatening damaging raids, and a western enemy lives north of the Hemus Mountains, determined never to become part of the empire. This is why it was so important to not believe your maps to not see conquest as an end in itself. The Romans always had the capacity to eliminate the Bulgarian state, but they didn't have the resources to replace it. When they reoccupied the Danube, the Pechenegs became their problem, and they handled the situation about as badly as can be reasonably imagined. The good news is, that the Pechenegs were not very numerous, and so weren't likely to start raiding across the length of the Balkans, nor were they likely to forge a bond with the Christianized Slavs living beside them, the way the Bulgars had once done. But that's about it. The bad news column is pretty full. A new enemy had risen in a familiar location, requiring more cash and men to monitor them, all as a consequence of needing more men and cash to guard the eastern frontier. And there, a far more numerous and threatening opponent had emerged. Chern, on the great Eurasian steppe, had finally hit the empire from both sides simultaneously, a crisis that most emperors would have struggled to deal with. Monomachos handled it with energy and commitment, but he did not have the military experience or perhaps the authority to get the results he needed. Next time, we will finally visit the home front and take a look at the imperial accounts books, which, as you can imagine, after this hugely damaging five-year war, were in terrible, terrible shape. 
Before I go, though, I should ask, speaking of maps, whether you get giddy about maps. Maybe you get angry about Mercator, but have a soft spot for Peter's projection and have a thirst for knowledge about the far-flung places of the world. If so, there is a new podcast called Map Corner that might be for you. It's produced by Royfield Brown of How Jamaica Conquered the World and 10 American Presidents, and he's interviewing and having geographic chat with fellow Carterphiles, and uh, hopefully you will enjoy it too. Check out Map Corner wherever you get your podcasts, and thank you for listening.